This is Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Thanks for joining us, listeners, again this week. It is great to have you here with us. We are going to have a great conversation. We have a... They're not technically with us, Terry. Well... <laughs> they are listening. Once they hear. <laughs> Thank you for listening, listeners. Thank you for listening, yes. So we have a guest in studio, and we are excited about this topic and this interaction with this one article we have. So we'll get into that, but it is great to have you. Dr. Paul Chamberlain. Thank you very much, guys. It's really good to be with you, especially on such a timely topic. Paul is known, especially to our listeners, probably, and to people that come to the conference. So, you know, there's some out there that actually know who you are. Mm -hmm. But give us a little intro to who you are, where you live now, what do you do? Great. Thanks, guys. Well, I teach at Trinity Western University, and and, uh, that's probably what most people do know about me. I've been there since 1990, so it's been a little little while. I joined the philosophy department when I first came. I love students. I love ideas. I love teaching. I love relating our Christian faith to the ideas of our culture. And it's been a real highlight for me. And I've had an opportunity to write on the issue we're going to talk about today as well. I have uh, two sons. I have one wife. Her name is Gail. She runs a little uh, local (laughs) business in town out of our home. And um, I love to ride motorcycle. I love to do anything outdoors. Yes, you Uh, have a Harley Davidson, don't you? Yes, I do. And (laughs) right now it's in the garage all buried. It's not under snow only because I have a garage, but it's ready to go in just a month or so. Yeah, we probably should mention that we braved some serious snow to get into the studio today. Just for you listeners. <laughs> That's special, right. We special all thanks made to it. Paul, though. I mean, we not did. only did you come, but you came through the snow to get yes, here. Yes, we did. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was great. It's beautiful out there, actually. Now, well, I have to say, I took a, a class with Paul here. I had yeah. a philosophy of religion mm-hmm. uh, with you. I still remember that. I'll never forget it because... The book that you used was Plantinga's Warranted Christian Faith. Right. Warranted Christian Belief, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. There we yeah. go. See, yeah. and that... Yeah. <laughs> well, how did you do in that class? Yeah, how did I do in there? You're close. Yeah. <laughs> enough, enough so that I knew the book you're referring to. <laughs> that is so good. Yeah. Um, uh, but I remember reading that book thinking, yeah. I don't know if I'll ever understand this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, no. I want to take you way back, mm-hmm. way, way back to mm-hmm. 1991. Yeah. My okay. first semester at university, at oh. Trinity Western University. Wow. And I think that was your first semester at Trinity Western University. Well, I started, teaching, I started in the spring of 90. So I'm, 90, uh, okay. I, I should say the fall of 90. So fall of 90. I was okay. probably a, a semester into it by the time you were uh, referring okay, to Okay, yeah. Wow. So I took an intro to philosophy with okay. you. Okay. I wasn't the greatest student back then. Yeah. I remember handing in a lot of late assignments. <laughs> But I, I got I passed. I don't remember that part, but I sure I sure enjoyed teaching those courses back though. I loved that. I, yeah, and yeah. I remember them well and a lot of intro to philosophy, a lot of ethics back in those days. Right. And, and the that, university was much smaller, growing rapidly, yes. having a great time. Yeah. Then I took a fourth year Christian apologetics course from you. Sure. Which really sparked my interest in the whole area of apologetics. Mm-hmm. And then years later I went to Axe Seminaries yeah. and completed a master's in Christian apologetics there right from you. Yeah. So you are the director of the 
Institute for Christian Apologetics. That's exactly that's, right. That's the f- mouthful. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, direct, director of that. And I also work now with a division called TWU Global. It's the group that puts in campuses in different places like Bellingham, Washington, Richmond, BC, and now China, India, Africa as well. So it's a, it's a real exciting part of the university. Good. So we're going to interact with an article that just came out a couple days ago. And the article uh, states, who should get a medically assisted death? Canadians get two weeks to weigh in on new limits. So this is dealing with the issue of physician-assisted suicide, which isn't, it's not called that anymore. It's called MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying. So, Paul, you've been talking about this issue for a very, very long time. You came out with a book in the year 2000 called Final Wishes, A Cautionary Tale on Death, Dignity, and Physician-Assisted Suicide. And then you're, you were thinking mm-hmm. about this issue even before that. Tell us how you got into this issue. What were the steps leading yeah, into this? That, that's great. That's, that's, a, that's a good, interesting question, interesting journey, uh, Terry. Because back in the early 90s, as you mentioned, I was teaching ethics. And, of course, we would cover issues like this in course. But one day I was in my office minding my own business, and I got a call out of the blue asking, inviting me to debate the member of parliament, Sven Robinson, on this issue. He was crusading very hard in the early 90s to have uh, physician-assisted suicide, as we knew it back then, legalized. And he was spending time with a woman called Sue Rodriguez, who had ALS disease, a very a progressive disease, and she was hoping to have, to have a physician-assisted suicide, but it was illegal in Canada at the time. And at the same time, my own mother had MS, multiple sclerosis. She had it for 34 years, and I watched her to watch this progress in her life as well. She died of it in, two, in the year 2003. And so I enter, entered into this debate with Sven Robinson. We actually had a very good exchange. We ended up doing one more later on, and then six more with another lady, Dr. Faye Gersh, who was the head of the Hemlock Society out of Denver, Colorado. We did these across Canada. And I, I got a, a real chance to, to find out what is it that makes this issue tick. Because it, it's academic, it's theory, it's argument, but it's also real people and real suffering and issues of dignity and value and how we live those out, how we demonstrate them. And I, I often, I spend a lot of time thinking about how we as Christians ought to be thinking this out and applying our faith to these issues as well. So after having those series of debates, hearing almost every argument you can think of thrown my way, and not just from debaters, but also from a lot of people, university students, because these were debates across the country in different universities, uh, having a, a students throw questions your way. After a while, I felt like I really understood it, and I sat down and worked on this book. I took a sabbatical and wrote the book, as you mentioned, called Final Wishes. Uh, and since then, I've just had many opportunities to, to think about the issue and to, to address it. And there's been a lot of developments. And of course, as we know, in two, 2016, our country did, and Canada did, legalize it. 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the prohibition against it. And 2016, we came up with a new law in uh, June of 2016. Bill C-14 was passed into law. But now that's being on, is on the table and under, under new uh, scrutiny and uh, possibly broadening as well. So what are your understandings of what's the next step here that just came out in a couple of days ago? And yeah, what is the government yeah. doing about this right, right now? Yeah, well, you know, it's still unfolding as we speak, but, but the bottom line is back in September uh, in Quebec, we need to go back to a particular condition that was placed on uh, access to medical assistance in dying when the law first came out in 2016. There's a number of conditions. In other words, it became legal, but you had to satisfy a number of conditions to be eligible to receive this service called medical assistance in dying, what we used to call physician-assisted suicide, then later physician-assisted death, now medical assistance in dying. One of the big conditions was that death had to be reasonably foreseeable. 
Now, that may sound like it's a wide-open statement if you were opposed to legalizing in the first place, but if you were in favor of, if you were advocating for this law, that was a real letdown to you, to have that condition placed upon it. Because in the minds of advocates of assisted suicide, of legalizing of assisted suicide, the idea was to have it available for anybody who wanted it. You shouldn't have to be facing death. And so to put this condition on immediately raised objection, and the Canadian Senate immediately tried to shoot it down. Uh, but the Liberal government stuck to their guns in 2016, the, the Senate backed down, uh, and so it went into law with that condition placed on it, and immediately the BC Civil Liberties Association went to town, and they challenged it as well. But And it's been in place ever since then, so in other, in other words, up until now, to receive this service, you have to be, have death being reasonably foreseeable, you have to have some illness. Well, that's what's now under uh, under consideration in Quebec, and people in Quebec challenge it for just for their province only. In September of 2019, a Supreme, a Supreme Court of Quebec, a judgment came down, ruling came down, saying that by March 11, either they need to come up with a new law or that particular condition will be struck down in Quebec only. So now the federal government of Canada is using this as an opportunity to review the entire law, giving all of us two weeks to give input uh, and uh, to see whether we want to strike down that particular condition and extend it to three particular groups of people. We can talk about those groups of people if you want later, but that's where it's going right now. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I just wanted to remind you that I have a new children's book out that I co-authored with Rachel McKenzie called What Am I Worth? You can pick it up at Amazon or ApologeticsCanada.com. As well, I have a new book coming out in September with Zondervan. The title is Reclaimed, How Jesus Humanizes in a Dehumanized World. As you know, we are living in a challenging time, but I believe with great opportunities for sharing the gospel. This book uniquely uses our humanity to discuss the gospel and what a life of flourishing in Christ looks like that I believe is desperately needed in our world. If you would like to learn more about this resource and help us get the word out, please consider becoming a part of our book launch team and help us get this resource into people's hands. Those that participate will get an early edition of the book and have the opportunity to learn and interact with me on its content. If you would like to participate, let us know by emailing info at apologeticscanada.com. And now, back to the podcast. From what I understood, uh, the federal government is really saying, you know, more than this just being a Quebec thing, they want to adopt this as uh, countrywide. Exactly. That's what's going on. It's starting in Quebec, and the federal government is saying, let's take this as an opportunity to see if we want to adopt this. And just just to let me add just a couple more things here, just to make sure we know what, what we're talking about here, is that uh, the question is now whether or not medical assistance in dying should be extended to three groups which are currently ineligible. One is what they call mature minors. It's a very serious point. People under 18 years old, if this goes through, would then be free to make this decision on their own without uh, having consent of parents. The second group is people with psychiatric conditions, mental illnesses. That also has raises all kinds of red flags in my mind. But the third group is for people who would like to make advanced directives. Now, advanced directives are not a new thing, but the idea is that if you happen to have some kind of progressive illness like dementia or Parkinson's, you could specify conditions that you would find intolerable and then say, if those conditions come my way, I would like to receive, a, receive an assisted suicide. All this comes down to scratching that one condition, that death must be reasonably foreseeable and applying to these three groups. And that's where they're asking for our input. Now, in the, the Quebec case, 
it came down to two individuals, Trucon and Gladu, who Trucon had cerebral palsy. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing this name. Uh, <laughs> Gladu had uh, paralysis and severe uh, scoliosis. And so this became the impetus saying, well, you know, we're experiencing pain and we would like to end our lives, but they didn't satisfy, as you mentioned, Paul, they didn't satisfy that criteria that the end of their life was near. And so this has brought this uh, idea of, well, what if we get rid of you know, that condition. And then, as you mentioned, it raises these other conditions that will potentially be brought into question, such as a mature minor advance request and, again, mental illness. Now, the, the thing that, that I want to talk about is, is, is that I find so interesting about all this is I remember being in Ottawa and talking with members of parliament and debating with them on this question, but it was always assured we're going to put in lots of provisions and, and roadblocks and you know, it, it's, it's only for these situations, because they always use the extremes, right? It's only for those people that are in lots of pain and we can't medically help them. You know, this gives them the option of being able to end their pain. But it's, it's always that slippery slope, right, where we start with that extreme argument and then it just starts to broaden, broaden, broaden until here we are now, where it's just going to be potentially just completely opened up because it really becomes challenging now. You know, how do we define these things, such as a mental illness? You know, that starts to become very broad uh, that, you know, it would seem to me that anybody could say, well, uh, mentally I'm suffering and I would like to end my life. Right. You see, uh, what, what, what you've raised is a, is a very serious point, Andy, and it's hard to know how to say it any differently than you did say it. Normally, when these kinds of things, including if you go back to the history of abortion in Canada, back to the late 60s and early 70s, you can track exactly the same kind of route where it was put in place for women and mothers who had serious physical problems. And, and what kind of person would you be if you denied that kind of person an abortion? But it wasn't too long, in fact, a very short time, in, in which it was extended to people with mental illnesses mental and, and, and psychological distress, people like that. Well, of course, that, beca- that simply opens up a very wide door, and eventually it simply becomes abortion on demand. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's intriguing to me that that's exactly the same parallel we're seeing here today. We're seeing that now uh, people with, with a psychological, uh, under psychological distress. You're right, that is very hard to define. And the interesting thing is that one of the very symptoms of people with psychiatric distress often is a desire to die. That is one of the symptoms. And what we need to realize is that often those people can get better. They can be treated and they can get better. But there's a certain time in there when they're subject to it, there's potential. They make a very bad decision, one which they would later regret if it didn't go through. And so that's why we're at, a, we're at a fairly serious juncture. And I think we really ought to take this opportunity to fill out the questionnaire and send back to the federal government that the law they put in was actually quite restrictive relative to other laws around the world. If they stuck with that, it really would curb some of the abuses that sometimes people fear from having, having this legalized. I myself thought it would have been better never to legalize it. But if it's going to be legalized, having some tight restrictions is actually quite helpful. What's intriguing to me is it's not very long before we're already putting the law under review and taking away one of the key restrictions which was in place before. I totally uh, agree with you. This is where it can be quite concerning where you have such as a mature minor and you start to open up these age restrictions because I think about the stupid things I did as a teenager or may have done as a teenager, for example, that you you know, you look back on that and go, Whoa, boy, I would have regretted that. I remember there was a time in my life that I wanted to put uh, a tattoo of a dragon across my chest. 
Uh, and my, and I remember my mom saying, Hey, would you just wait until your 20th before you tattoo that big black dragon across your tired chest? And I wanted the tail whipping around my back. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You know, and and, and I look back on that and I'm like, thank you, mom. You know, thank you. I probably, you know, I'm, I'm glad I didn't put that giant dragon across my chest. You know, this is much more serious than a tattoo. Mm -hmm. This is your life. And yet... Giving that sort of ability to a minor is, is, is quite concerning. Now, I want to throw us another direction that I have witnessed. You know, Paul, you and I do a lot of speaking on university campuses. And I won't forget, it was just a couple of years ago, I was speaking on a university campus on the subject of the value of life. And a girl that was in attendance there that was blind was brought up to the front to meet with me afterwards, and she was crying and and as we were talking, she was just talking about the pressures that she feels in her culture at devalued as somebody with a disability. And I have a niece with cerebral palsy, and she has told this to me numerous times, that they feel very devalued in our culture. Because in a culture where, you know, you start to see these disabilities as a liability, as, you know, as a cost and as a drag on the economy – it starts to put these pressures on people where it's like, oh, well, this person, you know, has and – and I mentioned this one, the part of the Supreme Court case in Quebec, a person with cerebral palsy, right? They want, you know, access to MAID. That puts pressure on other people with cerebral palsy that says, boy, am, should I be thinking about this? Or for this girl that was blind, she, that's why she was crying when she came up. She goes, man, I just feel such a pressure that I'm a drain on the medical system here and that my life doesn't have value. And these are, these are thoughts that people without disabilities often don't think about. We don't think about what's tacitly being communicated to that community. It's always been one of the most powerful arguments in my mind against legalizing assisted suicide in the first place. Just as you said, Andy, I think you've said it very well, that when a person ends up, say, in a wheelchair or, say, a paraplegic, quadriplegic, or with a terminal illness, and my mother was a perfect example of this. I saw it directly in talking with her. They immediately go from being a person who's making a great contribution in their life and their family, maybe on the job site somewhere, to now not being able to do any of that. And it's not long before in our culture, they begin feeling feeling like they're a burden to other people. And when you talk to people who work in palliative care, that's exactly what they'll tell you. This is one of the most common characteristics of people there. They feel like they're a burden to society, a burden to their families, an expense. They feel like they're not making the contribution that they made before. And when, when you take a person like that and then you legalize assisted suicide and have other people in our culture opting for it, there can actually be an inward sense of duty and obligation to take it. In fact, that's one of the most powerful statements I ever heard was from a palliative care specialist who told me years ago when I was writing my book that if we legalize this, the sense of obligation that certain people, people like this, will feel to take it will be overwhelming, he said. A sense of duty. I just couldn't believe it. And as I began thinking about it, I began to realize this is why. And so it's no more uh, hard to understand than the pressure a young girl can feel to have an abortion now that abortion is legalized. Uh, If she's pregnant and abortion is legalized, she can be subject to pressure from boyfriends, from parents, from some other people to have an abortion. And that's pressure that she would not feel if it were ill legal. So the more you legalize this and more you make it available for people, the more you put people at least subject 
to feeling a sense of obligation to opt for it. And I keep thinking, is that really the way to treat our most vulnerable members of our society? Is that the Christian way? No. Is that even the the humane way for a good, humane Canadian, religious or not? It just doesn't seem to me to be the way to go. Let's talk about that, you know, the most vulnerable in our society. We've talked on the subject of suicide here on the podcast. We've had people come in and talk on it. And it was interesting when we've done episodes, by the way, Terry, on suicide, I've had listeners contact me, uh, a number of listeners, whose family members, husbands, sons, daughters, have struggled with suicidal thoughts. It raises some real red flags, doesn't it? That Now, if you struggle with suicidal thoughts, we have a government now that potentially you know, as this law starts to broaden, and this could get classified as mental illness, this could be classified as mental suffering, that you don't need to jump off some bridge or, you know, hang yourself a closet or, you know, some, something like that, right? You know, we're, we're, we're trying to stop that, you know, and, and we have, you know, we'll call the police and we'll, we'll do whatever we can to stop people from taking their lives. But now it makes it really raises the question, do we try to stop that? Or do we just try to have you go into the the doctor's office and do it someplace where we don't have to see or, or you know, be inconvenienced, if you will, by this. It raises some real concerns. Now, maybe I, I, maybe I haven't said that very nicely, but this is the ugly truth of it. You're, you're really getting at a critical point here, uh, Andy. Uh, as one man in a wheelchair told me, a man who thought about this issue a lot, uh, the issue of physician-assisted suicide, he would give lectures, and he and I ended giving lectures a few times together. Uh, and he said, well, with able-bodied people, they're standing on a rooftop or at the edge of a bridge, and they're threatening to jump. What do we bring them? We bring them suicide prevention measures. The person in the wheelchair, the person with a terminal illness, that person struggles with suicide, and what do we bring them? We, we whisper it in the streets, but what we bring them is, yes, sign, the, sign this statement, go through these safeguards, and we'll help you die. And he simply asked this question. It's a value judgment we're making on various lives. Which, which are the lives we're willing to fight for, and which are the ones we're willing to say, yeah, we'll accept your request for assisted suicide. We'll give you death with dignity. We'll give these other people very hard suicide prevention measures. We'll do everything we can to stop in their case. Here, we'll give you death with dignity. And the way he asked it was, which are the lives we're willing to fight for? Are we not making a value judgment on some lives as being more worth fighting for than others? This is a really foundational philosophical point, but I, I don't see uh, that he had it wrong. I think he, I think he was really getting at it. Now, it was interesting to me that I think it was last year, there was a Dutch teenager who had been raped and was going through a lot of post-traumatic stress, trauma through that experience and was asking for access to medical-assisted death. But she was denied by the, the Dutch government. And so then she ended up, her name was Noah, she ended up starving herself to death. And that's the way that route went. Um, by the way, in a previous podcast, I, I may have said that euthanasia was, was applied there, but it has since come out that that was misunderstanding of the news at that time. There was a lot of fake news going on on that, or people just mistranslated the news at that time. The point being, though, is that won't be denied potentially in the future. And at the moment, the Canadian government's giving you an, an opportunity to speak into this. And I, and I think we really need to take that opportunity. We need to let the government know 
uh, how we feel about this. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's good. That's true. Uh, in fact, we could even go further. That that kind of case is exa- uh, exactly the kind that is brought up in argument by the people who would advocate the change we're talking about here today. Uh, the argument is that young girl should not have had to starve herself to death. She should have been able to go to her government and get help to die with dignity. That's the point we're at in the country. That's, that's the decision-making point right here. What about a person like that? My own suggestion, my own perspective would be, why can't we give her the best suicide prevention measure, the best counsel, the best love, and in fact, the best, in other cases, the best palliative care possible? Make that available and accessible to all Canadians. Put our money and our, and, and our uh, emphasis there, not on making it easier for people to die. So it's always great to revisit this issue and come back around and and talk about it again. You mentioned it uh, a little bit about this supreme virtue within our culture of this right to choose. Can we start to set up a case for this important issue with regards to Christians and how to look at this issue? Uh, I heard you say one time that one of the foundational questions is who makes the decision when I die? Can you start to develop this case as a Christian, how to look at this issue a little bit deeper. A great question, Terry. There are two or three areas where I find we have a real, what you would call maybe a cultural clash going on in our culture, whereas we as Christians are not really in sync, If we're at least if we're serious about taking a biblical worldview uh, carefully. We're not in sync, and this is really one of them. I mean, personal autonomy is a very important virtue right across the Western world, or I should say very important value across the Western world, the United States, Canada, um, the other Western European uh, countries as well. The right to make my own big life choices, right to determine my own destiny and all that, that is is foundational. In fact, that's behind most of what's going on in this discussion. As Christians, we're not necessarily against personal autonomy when it relates to the government. But I'll tell you, we have this other thing that we say a lot. We say uh, we have a creator who created all human life. And the key words out of every, every Christian's mouth ought to be, thy will be done on all of life's big issues, and especially this one. Now, I'm not sure how we expect people who are not Christians to be thinking that way. But we certainly are thinking that way. And that creates an entirely different attitude here. So that's why when you find Christians, serious Christians at the end of their lives, they may be going through suffering, they may be going through very difficult times. They are very rarely saying, yeah, I want to die now in my way on my own terms. We as Christians have, it's part of our DNA to say, thy will be done. Uh, and that limits our personal autonomy and affects the way we carry it out in our culture. And uh, I think that's just one of those cultural clashes, and there are a couple of others as well. Just going to bring up something with you, Paul, and your debates and on this subject. What do you find is the strongest argument for medical assisted death, and what would you say is is the strongest argument against it? Well, interestingly enough, the, the argument that seems to get most people's attention. First of all, is the personal autonomy argument that we just mentioned right now. And especially when you couple that with the idea that people are suffering, and there's a certain amount of physical suffering that medical science is simply not able to get rid of. Uh, Medical science is incredible in dealing with our pain management. In fact, it's in one sense, ironic that here we are at a time when we can control pain and manage pain better than any time in history 
And here is the time when we have a bigger push toward assisted suicide for that reason. But interestingly, the fact still remains. You hear from time to time, I know of a young woman about two years ago who died, a woman I grew up with, uh, and she died in terrible suffering and terrible pain for about the last four or five days of her life. And there was really nothing anyone anybody could do about it. Uh, when you hear cases like that, when people do, they are very moved by an appeal to giving that person a, uh, a, a, a right to opt for an assisted suicide for medical assistance in dying a few days early so they can avoid that. And that's the part that really gets people's attention most. One of the weakest arguments, I think, really at the end of the day is the very argument that's used often, the personal autonomy. That argument really, when you think, when you analyze it, really in, in a sense says nothing once you think about it. Because of course, we all agree that we ought to be free to do many things in life. But that's not a complete, a universal freedom with no restrictions. That's a freedom that is taken in, uh, in keeping with a whole lot of other freedoms that other people have as well. We're not free. There's, people want to do many things. Some are good and some are bad. People want to rob banks. We say no. People want to help people with disabilities. We say yes. The fact that you want to do something is never enough reason in and of itself to legalize the action. You always have to ask, what are the effects on other people? And I have found with this one here, the reason the argument is so weak is because it totally ignores the way that it, this changes the world for our most vulnerable citizens when we legalize assisted suicide. It puts them in this position where their own continued existence is now a choice they have to make. And that's at a time, as we mentioned earlier, when they feel like they're a burden to others, not a lot of dignity anymore, and not a lot of contribution. At least that's the way they feel that they're making. So I, I find the argument for personal autonomy relatively useless, very weak, even though it is often made by people who are advocating assisted suicide. And what would you say is the strongest argument against medical assisted death? Like, from a Christian perspective... What would be, you know, if you're in a debate, this is the argument you're definitely going to bring up? Well, the, the argument I've always used, the, the one I found strongest is the one I just mentioned right now, uh, is, is that if we legalize this, we have to ask the question, what will this do? To, how will this change the world for our most vulnerable citizens, the elderly, the terminally ill, and the disabled? How will it change the world for those people? Because the fact is, and this is what I've learned from, from people in, in uh, palliative care, and virtually nobody denies this. These are the people who feel like they're a burden to others, an expense to others, not making the contribution. We come to them and now say, you know what? There is an option here. You can opt out of this situation if you want, and other people are doing it as well. We may think we're doing them a favor and just giving them a choice. What we're actually doing is putting them in a position where their own continued existence is a choice they must now make. Uh, and, and that is a horrible thing to do to a person. The, the pillars of protection they always have had in our society was the laws that, that said, this is not even an option in Canada. We don't even talk about this. We don't do this. This is not anything you will, you will ever need to consider. Now it's a law in Canada, so we're past that point. The best we can hope for now is to have very strong restrictions and also have maybe some, some medical assistance in dying free zones, made free zones, uh, where it is not discussed and, and not raised. So people will never have to walk through that issue and, and wonder whether they should, have, they, they should opt for it. It definitely raises concerns for the elderly, doesn't it? Where 
it could easily be the, the thought of, oh, I don't want my children to go through the pain of having to watch me die, uh, or I, I don't want them to have to experience the burden of the finances or the burden on their time or, or whatever that be. Again, it's that tacit pressure that gets put on people. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And being tacit, as you say, uh, being uh, an inner type of pressure, a sense of obligation, it's not anything that we can say, well, no one, no one has ever mentioned that to that person. No one's ever put pressure on that person. That doesn't matter. It's what you feel in, uh, inward, uh, just as you say, when you look at the finances, you look at the cost. And the fact is, caring for people who are in these situations can be burdensome. It can take a lot of work. I saw my dad many times under quite a bit of stress caring for my mother over those years. So the fact is, everybody knows that, including the person being cared for. Now, when uh, they, they have to also do this knowing that, well, I could opt out of this situation. What right have I got to carry on put, being this burden to others when all I need to do is sign the form and say the word and I can be, uh, 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 I, I can be out of here, I can, I can have checked out, and they'll be freed of this burden. And as far as I can tell, that what we have to ask is, especially you mentioned it, as Christians, where do we come from? This is really critical because as Christians, we have a firm conviction of the intrinsic dignity of all human beings. If human beings really have that intrinsic dignity, then the question we have to ask is, well, how do we live that out? How do we show that? How do we demonstrate it? And certainly, it must come down to how we treat people who are not no longer making any contribution in life. Because if that's all we're going by, if we're treating people who are making a great contribution well, that means now we've moved to what's called an instrumental value of human life. We believe in intrinsic value of human life, by their humanness alone because of having been made by God in his image. Their humanness alone constitutes everything that is required for them to have that, that, in, that value and that dignity. So how do we treat people like that? And in my mind, uh, it, it, is, it is no way to treat them to put them in this situation where they have an inner sense of obligation to maybe exit the situation. That's such an important point, and it's an interesting paradox in our culture where on the one hand, we live in a, this culture that does want to pay lip service to that and say, such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that all humans have inherent dignity. But then how does that get cashed out really becomes the question because some people I think could make the argument, well, part of your inherent dignity is back to that you know, autonomy, is that you should respect their autonomy and allow them to – make what, you know, the, the choice that they want to make. But it's interesting because we, we would never allow that, as you've already mentioned, in a whole other array of laws, right? You're not, you, you know, just because you want to steal doesn't mean we're going to let you steal or, or whatever else it, it might be. And so it does raise some interesting questions of does the inherent dignity of a human life actually trump some of your autonomy in that sense mm-hmm. of wanting to undermine your own dignity, yeah, it's a great point, Andy. I remember being on a program with a medical doctor alongside me who, who had the same position as I, and across from us was another medical doctor with the opposite position and an academic with the opposite position. So the four of us were having this on-air discussion, and they were pushing very hard for exactly your point right there, that because humans have dignity and value and personal autonomy is important, they should be given the right to choose to die and to receive uh, physician's assistance in doing so. And so my question to the young academic uh, fellow was simply this. Would you grant that if the person was 16 years old? And this academic was actually a person who worked with young people as well. And he said, well, absolutely not. And I said, well, why would you not grant it? Where is his personal autonomy? 
And he said, and his answer was this, I'll never forget it. That young man has too much to live for. I said, think of what you just finished saying here. You just finished saying, making a value judgment. This person has a lot to live for, so we are not going to honor his personal autonomy, even though he wants to die. But as, as, the, uh, as the medical doctor immediately said, it's for people who are in their 90s, 80s and 90s. Okay, so for those people, you've now made the judgment that when they want to die, we'll give them death with dignity. But for the person whose life we have decided has too much to live for, we will not grant personal autonomy even though we say we're doing this on the basis of personal autonomy. That's why I find the argument so weak and actually so contradictory, and it's serious because it involves this value judgment we're making on the differing value we're placing on different lives. Let's talk about how contradictory it is here as we come to a conclusion, Uh, because I think this is an important aspect of the contradiction inherent here that often doesn't get discussed. And on the show, and with just apologies, Ken, in general, we hear a lot from physicians. A lot of physicians uh, interact with us. And one of the things that we continually hear from them is what about our dignity and autonomy as a physician that does not want to participate in this? And I think this is an interesting point that gets heightened with this restrictions being removed where now you're asking physicians to kill perfectly healthy human beings to participate in taking their lives, not because they're in great pain or something like this, but just simply because they're depressed or, or they have cerebral palsy. It's, it's so true. That, that's one of the new issues that has arisen because of this. Now, now that this has been legalized, I've talked with many physicians. I uh, had different discussions, and most physicians, no matter where they stand on this issue, did not go into medicine so they could learn how to end the lives of people. They went in to help people be healed and be cured and, re- and regain their, their vitality. And, of course, some of them stand firmly against this. And the question arises, well, will there be a conscience clause for physicians? Well, this is still a murky area. And people in Canada debate it. Some jurisdictions, they grant a lot of autonomy to the physicians. Others, they they don't. In certain places, they require them to refer to another physician who will grant the service, even if they don't want to do it. Uh, Other places, they don't do that. But the physicians I've talked to, a number of them have said, referring also leaves me complicit in the act. I would rather not in, uh, not re- have to refer. And I've talked to one physician who said, you know what, I was getting a little older anyway. It was time to get out. I didn't want to get involved in this. And I thought, how sad. Here is a very fine Christian physician stepping back because he doesn't want to have to be put in a position where he might be pushed into doing something that would violate his own moral and religious convictions on this issue. But a conscience clause is really critical. If there's anything to fight for in Canada at the moment, it is that physicians remain completely free to be involved or not involved. The fact of the matter is, the vast majority are still opposed to being involved in this, if you look at the polls with the Canadian Medical Association and the physicians. So I think that this is a good place to wrap up as we really just plead with our listeners let Canada hear your voice on this. Yeah, this particular time we have a, an opportunity to give some input. And so we'll put a, a link in our uh, show notes to the questionnaire that you can go on and give your input. But the, the, the government has been given a very short time frame, right? Two weeks to do fill out this questionnaire. So go out there and do that. And then their decision will come on March 11th, I believe. 
We'll keep you uh, updated on this and uh, do uh, your civic duty, I guess. <laughs> Go out there and, and do this uh, questionnaire. I, I would say your Christian duty. Christian duty, too. We value human life, and we want to make sure that our voice is heard uh, of how much we do value human life and uh, what we believe would lead to human flourishing. Paul, thanks so much for being on the podcast with us. You're most you are welcome. Gonna, you're My going to be at the conference with us again this year. Yes, I will. Doing a breakout session. Do you have a new book coming out? Is that my understanding? Yes, we do. Chris Price, uh, known to all of us here, a good, a good brother and a good uh, a pastor and apologist, and I have edited a volume. In fact, Andy Steiger here, my own brother right here across the table from me, has been contributing two chapters in this book. It's called Everyday Apologetics. It's a book which is addressing a number of the most common challenges, the most common issues you will face if you want to interact with your neighbor across the back fence about the Christian gospel. Uh, it's full of uh, stories, full of questions, illustrations, even some humor along the way to make it really readable and really usable, whether you're a scholarly person or not. We're really excited about it. It's going to be out just in time for the conference. Oh, excellent. You better believe it. <laughs> I, I read May, but this, that's even Wait, better. No, we upped it up. We, oh, you did. We upped the, the publishing date. It, so it, was, it was May. Now, now it's early March because we worked with a publisher to get it ready for the conference. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Always a pleasure, Paul. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is the Ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about. Yeah.